Welcome to Silver Lining, the podcast where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. In today's episode, Isaac Tan, Columbia PhD candidate in East Asian history, takes a close look at the formation of modern Japan in the interwar period. We discuss the country's history with eugenics, how the concepts of race and racism work in modern day Japan, and how blood types continue to be used as an indicator of personality type. It's great to have you with us, Isaac. In your research, you mentioned how the development of eugenics in Japan paralleled how modernity was perceived and influenced by mass culture. Can you maybe explain what modernity meant to the Japanese, particularly during this interwar period? For me, I, modernity is more of an experience that actually changed a lot of, uh, they changed the, psycholog- the, the, the psychological aspects of the Japanese because it was a total new experience for them, especially as, dif- as, as differentiated from the earlier uh, time periods that they have lived through and also for the future generations that come after. So. I would argue that the perception, the understanding and uh, experience of modernity for the Japanese was something that very different from what they have experienced before. So it was something that they had to come to terms with. The period when modernity arised in Japan was at a time when Japan started to come out from its seclusion and became much more, uh, became much more uh, connected with the rest of the world as compared to the Heims before. Would you say there's a difference between Western, maybe broadly speaking, Europe and the Americas? Um, is there a difference between Western and Japanese perceptions of modernity? And if so, what are some key examples? I would say that I would start off with the modernity in both Japan and the West was marked by the rise of like labor unions, um, feminist movements, um, progressive ideas, rationalization, scientific, scientification, and so on and so forth. And this was something that was uh, prominent in both Japan and the West as well. But in the case of Japan, I think one interesting thing is that as they are trying to come to terms with what modernity meant and what uh, they could contribute to this whole new uh, ideas that are coming out, they were trying to impose their own understanding of what modernity meant to them and to show that there were actually multiple paths to modernity. So it's this idea of uh, multiple modernities that they were trying to, uh, that they're trying to uh, uh, go against this Eurocentric or Western-centric idea of what modernity was at the time. Right, and in this context of emerging from seclusion and coming to terms with a new identity, where did the notion of eugenics emerge from? The notion of eugenics is very much a uh, foreign import idea because eugenics, this term eugenics is it came from a, a Greek word. Uh, I think it was coined in 1883 by Francis Galton, a British statistician uh, who actually was specializing in population statistics, statistics. Sorry, the term eugenics was first translated into its uh, was just uh, one of the first uh, translations of eugenics into Japanese language was the term eugenics, just in its own, just in its plain uh, form, and then they started to use terms like uh, racial science, racial hygiene, ethnic science, ethnic hygiene, um, after much influence from the Germans, especially in their, in their, medical, in their medical knowledge. So it shows how uh, this import of uh, foreign knowledge was kind of navigated by the Japanese to try to see where they fit into their own uh, practices. 
We know in America, racism is very much based on skin color, which distinguishes like a spectrum of uh, a supposed hierarchy. But when in the East Asian context, it seems that East Asians look similar, at least share the same skin color. So it's not the the factor that is being used to distinguish race and practice racism. So I was just wondering how the Japanese kind of externalize other East Asian races and to perpetuate their kind of racism. Thank you for raising that question because that's when all the other scientific niche that Japanese actually learned from the West, uh, this period of time whereby they were trying to trying to distinguish themselves from the rest of Asia, there were lots of ideas of where the Japanese, the Japanese race actually came from. So you have ideas saying that the Japanese race came from the North, from the Mongolian, uh, uh, that we trace all the way to Mongolia, the Mongoloid race, or there were people trying, trying to say that you know, there's this integration of the Polynesians from the South that actually came in. And then you have people saying that it's actually a mix between both. So there's always this argument that goes on and on that never gets resolved because of the lack of archaeological evidence. And the Japanese were trying to find them, they were trying to find their identity in a sense because they, they, they realize that they need to know where they are from in order to position themselves as compared to the rest of the world. So this debate goes on and on. They cannot find a conclusive evidence of where they actually... I mean, it's, today it is almost impossible to trace where a particular race has come from originally because it's, you are discounting interracial mix. You're discounting all this possibility of you know, uh, interracial uh, interactions in the first place. So... But at that time, this, this sense of purity, this sense of superiority that is embedded in this idea of purity positions the Japanese in a way that, yes, they are now the new superpowers, so now they have to find justifications of trying to differentiate themselves from the rest. And one of the, I would say, one of the most um, legitimate ways is actually to use scientific knowledge that was credible at that time, as mentioned, eugenics. Uh, fingerprints, blood types, and so on. Yeah. And who is it that's maintaining this obsession with um, the purity of the Japanese identity? Is it the aging population, or is it is it across the the board of Japanese society? Oh, you mean um, this idea of maintaining? Is it? Yeah. Within... Where is it coming from? Who's who are the agents perpetuating this idea? This whole idea of a. Uh, purity, racial purity, is something I would actually argue that it comes only in the post-war period. Because in the post, after the Japanese empire collapsed in 1945, after they surrendered in 1945, losing all their colonies, they had to restrict to giving citizenship to only the themselves. So you have, for example, you have the Chinese immigrants, the Taiwanese immigrants, the Korean immigrants who are in Japan overnight losing their citizenship because they are no longer regarded as part of uh, the Jap Japanese, the new Japanese nation. So it's the post-war phenomenon that um, they had to maintain this idea of a uh, Japanese nation, this pure Japanese uh, identity that became, that, I mean, this pure Japanese identity becomes much more solidified in the post-war period. Yeah, whereby they started to say that we are one homogeneous race, which is totally, I don't think so, because I mean, no, no races in the world could actually claim that they are homogeneous. 
in the first place, even though North Korea does that as well. But I mean, yeah, it's so isolated, but still. In the case of Japan, it is because they had to justify their new boundaries as the new Japanese nation uh, after losing all their colonies, after losing all their uh, imperial possessions previously. So to make, to, in order to state a claim, they had to draw this clear definition, this, to create this identification that who are the Japanese and who are not Japanese. Just now you mentioned blood type as part of the scientific evidence that the Japanese use to like um, prove their superiority. Um, could you explain a little bit more about this blood type personality hypothesis and general theories about blood type and what's the significance of this? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so this idea of blood types, uh, I mean, blood types is, uh, was just discovered in 19, early 1900s. So this blood type, but the blood, but um, the blood type personality hypothesis was a purely Japanese uh, invention. It came out in uh, 1927, whereby uh, one psychology trained teacher came out with this idea that you know each personality, no, sorry, each blood type has its own personality. So, for example, um, blood type A is perceived to be very um, enthusiastic. Uh, very motivated, whereas for part type uh, B is someone who is much more um, carefree, uh, uh, not easily focused. Blood type O is someone who is very serious and very energetic. And blood type AB is someone who has selective traits of A and B, which doesn't really explain anything. So this is the blood type personality hypothesis. And um, at that time when it first came out, it was not uh, accepted by the rest of the scientific community because the scientific community at that time were also, were also trying to find out what is the scientific value of blood types. You know? So uh, shortly after it was discovered, the, uh, I mean, shortly after the, the four blood types were actually discovered, um, there were many surveys done by the Western powers to survey uh, to, to, in collecting the blood types of different populations across the world. So one of the major discoveries and one of the uh, general rule that was accepted at the time was that uh, uh, the Western society, uh, populations have a higher proportion of blood type A. And then some uh, anthropologists started to argue that, oh yeah, this is why uh, you know, these Western populations were able to colonize or, or, or in a way were far more superior, superior as compared to the rest because of the higher proportion of blood type A. And some even say that, you know, this actually positions them at a, 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 higher, level, a higher level of evolution as compared to the rest of the world. Um, so the Japanese uh, were actually quite, uh, the Japanese scientific community themselves were actually quite, uh, taken aback by this discovery because they themselves were actually conducting their own blood surveys, blood type surveys as well. And they show that, you know, blood type A is actually the most prominent, uh, the most prominent group in the Japanese society population as compared to the rest. So why is this distinction? But relatively speaking, as compared to the European populations at that time, the Japanese population had a slightly larger blood type B as compared to the rest as compared to the Europeans. So that was why when all the scientific uh, data came out, 
it wasn't very conclusive because you have a huge B group, even though it is not the largest blood type group in your own population, but it positions you also in a way that it is, you are in a way confirming what the Western scientific uh, population surveys came up and in concurring their uh, results that, you know, it was because of the it was because of the lack of blood group A in your own population. That's why you are much you are com you are inferior as compared to the European populations. Thank you for this account, and it kind of makes me wonder, um, like what the present day perception of blood type is in East Asian societies, and maybe specifically in Japan. And are there still racial implications to the kind of blood type personality we're talking about? Mm -hmm. um, this idea of blood type having some influence over, the, over one's personality is very much a Japanese creation. So you still see them in places that were previously colonized by Japan. So for example, Taiwan, for example, Korea. Um, you have shows that actually uh, portray the apparent link between personality and blood type. I think there was one Korean drama that that's, the title is like my boy, my boyfriend is uh, blood type B or something like that. I can't remember. And then you have all these different dramas and uh, that 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 shows in both Japan, Taiwan, and Korea. And if you read the magazines, the, the all these uh, show, uh, uh, all these entertainment magazines, whereby they they give you the uh, synopsis of a drama, all the time you will see that they will also include the blood group of that character, of that particular personality in the drama itself. So somehow rather, it's very much ingrained in Japan, especially as compared to the rest. Even to today, I would say that when you mention to a Japanese that you're of a certain blood type, they will immediately, oh, you're of this particular trait, you're of this particular personality. Something like the horoscopes that we are more familiar with, but in a much more simplified, because at least horoscopes, we have 12 different groups, I mean 12 different constellations. Whereas for blood types, there are only four. And one of, the, or one of them, AB, is just ridiculously saying that you have selective traits of A and B that doesn't really explain anything at all. So it, it really phantoms, I, mean, I, I really do not understand why even to today, people are still subscribing to it. So it, there's something that I really want to explore. And it's only in Japan, Taiwan, and Korea, and that's all. Because when you go out of that sphere, if you go to China, if you go to uh, Southeast Asia, if you ask, nobody believes in this connection between blood types. For example, in Thailand, instead of blood types, they believe that it is the day that you're born on, uh, the day you're born in, sorry, the day you're born in, that, that actually uh, influence your personality. So different societies have their own different ways of, you know, but it is mainly more of the looking out to the skies, you know, the stars and the constellation, rather than what the Japanese did is looking into the body, looking to one's one's blood group to to to, to determine one's personality. Yeah, it sounds absurd, but it also sounds very fascinating in a way. Yeah. For both eugenics and blood type, it seems that um, you're accounting for how societies create knowledge and supposedly scientific knowledge. It seems to be especially relevant today where people cannot really distinguish between facts and lies and everything can be claimed as science. I was just curious what's your take on how societies create 
scientific knowledge, what are the general motivations, what are uh, the kind of contexts that create that kind of blurring of the line between science and fiction. Yeah. Um, in the case of creation of knowledge, creation of scientific knowledge, I mean, all of us know that it is never an individual's alone. It's always a community that actually creates knowledge. Even if it's create, I mean, even if it's something that's discovered or something that they hypothesize, you need several experiments to, in order to justify and to say that it is something that's proven. So in the time, in the 1920s, 1930s, it was a period of time whereby many of the specialists, the scientists themselves, um, they were actually retreating away from trying to popularize scientific knowledge. And because as they retreat from the, this project of popularizing scientific knowledge, non-specialists come into the picture. So you have journalists, you have social commentators coming in to popularize scientific knowledge. That's the issue when you have non-specialists trying to popularize scientific knowledge and justifying and saying that this, and, and that this effect is something that's proven, this is something that's scientifically proven, this is something that's um, science, even though their background is actually not even scientific, uh, not, not even from scientific backgrounds. I mean, that's the issue when it comes to the creation of scientific knowledge by cultures. But we cannot deny that, because especially um, even today, especially today, when you have, you have social media, you have television, you have radio, you have all sorts of outlets of knowledge, you have all sorts of sources of knowledge. In the past, whatever the scientist says, it becomes credible, it becomes accepted. But today you have so many different sources, each claiming to be a specialist in the area, and you do not even know whether their, their, their educational background is something that is credible or not, because there's so explosion of uh, information coming out that confuses this whole search of credibility, this whole search of what science actually is. And that's why you have all these different uh, people claiming to actually uh, advance um, scientific knowledge. That's the thing that I, I feel that um, we need to take into consideration the study of culture, the study of uh, mass culture, because that's how uh, a certain information, certain knowledge is being, uh, that's being uh, disseminated across the society. So I think that's why we need to actually look at um, how a knowledge, how a, uh, information is actually spread across. That is actually part of the whole production of knowledge. That's why, um, especially in current situation whereby you have the explosive information, uh, explosive amount of information that you can have access to, we need to seriously look at how the cultural aspects come into place in shaping and popularizing all these different um, knowledge across Society. Thank you so much, Isaac. I think that about wraps up the bulk of our questions for the podcast itself. I think you brought so much energy and really helped us understand the research that we read beforehand. Um, I guess before we let you go, I just had a personal kind of out of personal curiosity. I wanted to ask you what interested you about researching Japan and in particular interwar Japan. Um, sorry, why? Why Japan and why oh. like that interwar period? Oh, okay. Oh, um, since young, I mean, I'm from the I am from the generation whereby it was J-pop, not K-pop. <laughs> recent thing, you see. I am, I'm from the generation of J-pop, so you uh -huh. have all this uh, animation and everything. That was how I got very much into Japanese culture and Japanese um, history, so to speak. Because, I mean, I was studying history in my undergraduate years. 
and Japan. So that was how I managed both into my own research interest. And as for why interwar Japan, because okay, some of my friends were asking me why. Yeah, in fact, this is a question that many people ask me. Why do you, even my Japanese friends ask me why do you even study interwar Japan? Because interwar Japan is one of the most confusing, most complicated period in their political history because they have so many prime ministers changing. I didn't, can't even tell me who are the prime ministers during that time. So it's so difficult to I mean so difficult to study. But to me, I'm like I'm not interested in political diplomatic history. I'm more into the medical, cultural history. Mm-hmm. So why interwar is that it is firstly it is so chaotic, it's so confusing that I'm trying to draw sense of what's actually going on. And another thing is that interwar the the things that happen in interwar is something that we are still experiencing even to today because we cannot deny the importance or we cannot deny the influence of World War II. And in fact, I try not to use the term interwar, even though I used the term interwar in my previous projects because yeah, it was one of my earliest, uh, one of my earlier uh, research. Because when we say interwar, we're actually positioning World War I and World War II. But Japan is not a very strong, uh, not a very prominent player in World War One as compared to the rest. So sometimes I, I would like to, no, I mean, currently I'll, I'll use the word pre-war instead of interwar because the years before World War Two itself is actually very, it's something that actually has a lot of bearings even to today, has influenced all of us in ways that we may not realize, but it actually can be traced back all the way to the, pre-war period itself. So that was one of the reasons why I go into the pre-war. And um, why, I mean, like why blood time and why eugenics? I think it's one thing is because of the, the controversies that surrounds them because we all like to talk about controversial stuff. So, <laughs> and we cannot deny how it has an appeal over our thinking. It's just that we have to suppress it, you know, try to put it in a much more politically correct way when we're addressing all these controversial issues. I mean, that's why I like to move into all these controversial issues. It's because it allows me to think on, it allows to articulate not just a politically correct way, but something that is true to what I believe in as well. So, mm-hmm. it may not be acceptable to people outside, to certain people, which I totally understand because it is a controversial issue. That's why it is bound to create discussion. It is bound to create a more interactions on how we can resolve this issue in the first place. So that's why I decided to move into uh, medical history, race, um, uh, blood type, because it's something that's, that I've always been very interested in. Uh, something that's, to, I mean, I, this, whole, this, whole, this whole issue of identity is also something that I'm very much interested in because Coming from a uh, coming from a Singapore, I mean, coming from Singapore, we we say that we are from a uh, multiracial society and stuff like that, you know. But are we really a racial society? You see, I mean, the very fact that you're still using race as one of the markers in our official documents, personal documents, it shows that we are still not moving away from this idea of race, and in fact. The term race is something that is, I would, I would not use the term race 
as compared to I would prefer the word ethnicity because when you, when you talk about race, it seems to be a much more diff, much uh, much more um, there's a much distinct difference between the different races, different groups of people. In fact, we are one human race. You see that I can understand. But why do you differentiate into like the Chinese race, the Japanese race, uh, the Malay race? I mean, that is something that I am very uncomfortable with, and it's something I can explore because it's something close to my heart, and that's why, because it shapes how we how we see ourselves, our own how do we come to terms with our own identity? Like yeah, I mentioned, you know, how Japan comes to terms with their own identity in the modernity period. For even for us, we are all going through this as well because. It is something that we cannot uh, totally just accept what the state or what we are being taught since young. Because as we grow up, we have our own experience, we have our own uh, interpretations of how it is like. That's why I like to go into areas of uh, studying identity, uh, medicine, and Japan in the pre-war period. You've been listening to Silver Lining with Yanwa Chen, Ji Yun Moon and Jasleen Chaga. This podcast is a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory, which seeks to tackle global challenges by cross-cultural collaboration. Thanks to our guest speaker this week, Isaac Tan, and thanks to you for tuning in. Goodbye.